Welcome to the Gateway.Live podcast. We're so glad you're here. We pray that God speaks to you through this message and through his word today. For more information about our church, please visit us at www.gatewaylife.com. Now let's tune in. We are continuing this oh-so-long four-week sermon in the middle of our Anchored series entitled, What is God Like? And we're going over some, not even close to all of the attributes of God, but some of them. And this is part three of the sermon, What is God Like? And, and it all flows together. We've covered 13 points so far. So instead of point number one at the beginning of this message, this isn't the beginning of the message. It's part three of four. So it's point number 14. So before I kick in, if this is your first time here, let me just tell you, not all messages are like this. This is in the deepest end of the pool theologically, and for some, I watched it last night, they felt like they were being drowned at the bottom of the theological pool, and that's okay, uh, because remember why. The title of the series is Anchored, and that which we anchor ourselves to, as, a, as we're talking about our faith in Christ Jesus, must be so heavy that it sinks to the bottom and, it, and is unmovable. So every once in a while, there has to be a message like this. We're going to talk about the sovereignty of God and the holiness of God, which are two biggies, all right? And, and the first point of this message takes about eight hours to go through, all right? So just saddle up. You can leave for lunch, come back, and, and I'll still be going, all right? Okay, point number 14 in answering the question, what is God like? Point number 14, the sovereignty of God. When we answer the question, what is God like, we must talk about the fact that God is sovereign. What does that mean, that God is sovereign? Very simply, it means God is in control. An even more theologically accurate way to say it is God is in total control. Let me read you a couple of passages. Isaiah 46, starting in verse 9. God says, remember the things I've done in the past. For I alone am God. I am God, and there is none like me. Only I can tell you the future before it even happens. Everything I plan, God says, will come to pass. For I do whatever I wish. That's nasty right there. That's nasty. Our God is saying, listen, I do whatever I wish period, point blank. That's it. No one can stop me from doing whatever I want to do. Ephesians chapter 1, New Testament, verse 11. Furthermore, because we are united with Christ, we have received an inheritance from God, for he chose us in advance. We'll talk about that in a moment. And he makes everything work out according to his plan. Let me read you one more, Isaiah 14, verse 24. The Lord of heaven's armies has sworn this oath. It will all happen as I have planned. It will be as I have decided. Now you see God saying, nobody can stop me. I do whatever I want. Now, we're going to go through a lot of scripture, and when you came in, you should have received notes. If you don't have notes, you're going to feel like you're drowning even more in this message. So let me just ask, did anybody not get notes that would like it to have notes, and we'll pass them out? Okay, just keep your hand up until you get notes. I don't want you to drown, okay? So we'll make sure and get you some notes. Just keep your hand up until you get them. And I'll wait till you get them, because this first 
one-liner is in your notes and you can just follow along. When we talk about the sovereignty of God, we have to understand the why behind it or the how. How is God sovereign? Well, in an attempt not to oversimplify it, the sovereignty of God is the result of him having all power and all knowledge. Now, I'm going to give you my simple man's definition for sovereignty, okay? And I, I just so happen to like this definition a whole lot because I feel like the Lord gave it to me, and I usually don't get smart stuff like this, okay? But it's really, it's smart, but it's simple, all right? You ready? Here's what the sovereignty of God means, and you can write this down in your notes. God has the power and authority to do whatever he wants, however he wants, whenever he wants, for, to, and through whomever he wants forever. That's a good definition of sovereignty right there. That's solid. I'll, I'll say it one more time so you can write it down. God has the power and authority to do whatever he wants, however he wants, whenever he wants, for, to, and through whomever he wants forever. I'll show you this in Scripture. A couple of passages. Proverbs 21, verse 1. The king's heart is like a stream of water directed by the Lord. He, God, guides it, the heart of the king, wherever he pleases. God directs the heart of the king wherever he pleases. Ezra chapter 6, verse 22 shows us practically a moment in time where this happens. And they, the Jewish people, kept the Feast of Unleavened Bread seven days with joy, for the Lord had made them joyful and had turned the heart of the king of Assyria to them. So God turned the heart of the king of Assyria to the Jewish people. Why? So that he, the king, aided them, the Jewish people, in the work of the house of God, the God of Israel. And let me show you an instance in the New Testament. And this is going to blow some of you away because every once in a while I hear someone say, as it relates to the crucifixion of Jesus, that it was the Jewish people who crucified Jesus. An even more harsh way to say it is, the Jews killed Jesus. Now, I'm going to show you in Acts chapter 4, that's not what Scripture says. And in fact, that's actually been something that's been used as a reason to have hatred for the Jewish people. But let me show you who actually was behind the crucifixion of Jesus. Acts chapter 4, verse 27. In fact, this happened here in this very city, speaking of Jerusalem. For Herod Antipas, Pontius Pilate the governor, the Gentiles and the people of Israel were all united against Jesus, your holy servant, whom you anointed. Watch this next part, verse 28. But everything they did was determined beforehand according to your will. Speaking of God. Okay, here's the, the most simple way to address who killed Jesus. I did. You did. More theologically accurate would be to say, my sin did. My sin killed Jesus. And it was determined beforehand, beforehand, that he would die for my sin and yours. Now, when we open up this can of worms, some go all the way to the extent of, well, then Preston, what that means is everything that happens, God causes to happen. It's all, all him. And basically, we're just all robots. Okay, that's not true, all right? 
That, in my opinion, is taking the sovereignty of God and going to the extreme end of the spectrum. And here's how I would say it. There is a difference between God causing all things and God allowing some things. Not everything that happens is caused by God, but it is allowed by God. Let me explain. 2 Peter chapter 3. Does 2 Peter chapter 3 say, God wills that none should perish? Yes or no? Yes. God wills that none should perish. Okay, let me ask you a question. Have there been some or even many who have perished apart from God? Yes. Okay. God wills that none should perish, yet many perish apart from him or separated from him. Okay. That helps us understand. The sovereignty of God does not mean that God causes everything and the rest of us are relegated to being robots on the earth. No. God causes, but God also allows. Here's another big question that comes up as it relates to the sovereignty of God. Well, Preston, if God causes all this to happen, then does God cause evil to happen? Absolutely not. God does not cause evil, and I can prove it to you. And some even go as far as to say, well, then this means that God created evil. No, God did not create evil because evil is not a created thing, and I can prove it to you. What is evil? Evil is the absence of good. In the same way, cold is not a created thing. Cold is simply the absence of what? Heat. Okay, evil is not a created thing. Is it something God allowed? Yes. Is it something God created? No. If God created evil, that would make him evil and imperfect. So I need you to understand there's a difference between God causing all things and God allowing some things. Romans 8, 28, a very commonly quoted verse. Think about what it says. Now I'll read it to you with a little bit of, of sarcastic emphasis, all right? And we know that God causes everything, end of sentence. Is that what it says? No. And we know that God causes everything to work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose for them. What does that mean? That means even the things that God allows that happen to me, that may not be my favorite thing that happens to me, God takes those allowed things and everything he causes to work together for my good. That should give us confidence. That even the curveballs in life, number one, are not surprises to God. Not only are they not surprises, God takes those curveballs and actually works them to your advantage. Talk about rubbing it in your enemy's face. That's the sovereignty of God. That even when the devil comes and tries to rip Job's life apart, God goes, watch this. I'll work this together for his good and mine. That's gangster right there. That's the sovereignty of God at work. Now, some go so far and they, they kind of get into this robot thing that, you know, God chooses. And, and listen, I know some of you are thinking this, not everyone, but uh, when we talk about the sovereignty of God, um, we, 
Calvinism starts to come into play. And let me just say, I have some, some of my dearest friends are Calvinists, okay? So you know me well enough to know, I'm not here to pick a fight with anybody. And I will never stand up and say that someone who's a Calvinist is an error or an idiot. They love Jesus just as much as I do, okay? It's simply that they just see some things differently than I do and maybe even we do. And one of the things that, that a Calvinist see, sees differently is the sovereignty of God, okay? As it relates to salvation, especially. And so you hear words like the elect, and that's not a word that I use, but I do believe that God chooses us. Here, let me try in the most simple way possible uh, to explain salvation uh, to where, here's, here's the joke I make with my Calvinist friends. I go to bed like a Calvinist, but I get out of bed in the morning like an Arminian. Now, some of you know what that means, and some of you don't, and it's okay if you don't. But basically what that means is I go to bed as one who knows that God chose me before I chose him. But I get out of bed in the morning as one who, who lives as though it is on me who's been given the ministry of reconciliation by the God who wills that none should perish. I must get up and do something by proclaiming this beautiful gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Okay? Well, there's a healthy tension there. All right, here's how I would describe salvation. It's like a door. And on the front of the door, it says, whosoever will. And when one walks through that door, they see on the other side of the door, it says, I chose you. You see the healthy tension between God choosing and here's the way I would say it. Believers, and this is in your notes, as believers in Jesus, we must hold the sovereignty of God and the responsi responsibility of man in healthy tension. These two things were meant to be held in healthy tension. The big question is, okay, Preston, how can God be sovereign and man have a free will? That doesn't make sense to me, Preston. Okay, let me ask you some other really hard questions. How can God be three in one? <laughs> we talked about that last week. I'll give you another question. How can Jesus, for 33 years living on this earth, walking the dirt of this earth, be fully God and fully man? Two natures seemingly completely opposed to one another, but never opposed to one another, living in harmony with one another, never to step upon one another or violate the other. How is that possible? I don't know. I don't know. Deuteronomy 29, 29. Phil read this last week. The secret things belong to the Lord our God. There are just some things I'm not going to fully understand, and I'm okay with that. Listen, if I served a God that I could completely understand, he wouldn't be God anymore. <laughs> it's one of my favorite things about him, is I don't understand him completely, but I want to spend the rest of my life and all eternity trying. Now, let me show you one passage. I don't have enough time to show you multiple passages. Let me show you one passage. Uh, Matthew chapter 11, if you turn there, I want you to read this with me. Verse 27 Verse 28 is commonly quoted, but I want to show you verse 27 because I want you to see that I believe Scripture asks us to hold the sovereignty of God and, and the responsibility of man in healthy tension, okay? I'll ask you which one you see in each verse. Matthew chapter 11, verse 27, Jesus says, My Father has entrusted everything to me. No one truly knows the Son except the Father, and no one truly knows the Father except the Son, and those to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Okay, question. Do you see the sovereignty of God or the responsibility of man in Matthew eleven twenty seven? 
the sovereignty of God, right? Because it says, only those to whom the Son chooses will have the Father revealed to them, right? So we see sovereignty of God. And it'd be easy just to take that one verse out of context and go, oh, there it is. It all comes down to God's choice. It's the elect, okay? Let's read verse 28. Then Jesus said, come to me. What's the next word? Say it a little louder. Come to me, chosen. Come to me, all of you who are weary and carry heavy burdens, and I will give you rest. Okay, in Matthew eleven twenty eight, 28, do you see the sovereignty of God or the responsibility of man? The responsibility of man. The two are held in healthy tension. Now, to just kind of set this record straight, I want you to think about the last chapter in the Bible, Revelation 22, the very last chapter. Now think about this. If you were writing a thousand-page letter to your beloved, how you end is going to be really important, right? You're not going to end weakly. You're going to end strongly, okay? Think about how the Bible ends. I know pretty much the last thing that's said is, now don't you dare add anything or take away from this book. Let it stand on its own. But right before that, what is God saying to us? Let me read it to you. Revelation chapter 22, it's not in your notes, but you can write it down if you want to go read it this week. Verse 17, the spirit and the bride say, come. Let anyone who hears this say, come. Let anyone who is thirsty come. Let anyone who desires drink freely from the water of life. And everybody who got in on that water of life said amen. Okay, two of you. (laughs) The spirit and the bride beg you to come. Human responsibility. Yes, God chose me first. But God has allowed me and you to choose. In his sovereignty, God has allowed us to choose if we will follow him or not. Here's the 15th point. That just sounds funny, doesn't it? Point number 15, the justice of God. When we talk about what is God like, we have to cover the fact that God is just. Psalm 89, verse 14, righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Unfailing love and truth walk before you as attendants. Psalm 9, verses 7 and 8, but the Lord reigns forever, executing judgment from his throne. He, God, will judge the world with justice. That's important to know. How will he judge the world? With justice. I'll give you the definition of that word in a moment. And he rules the nations with fairness. Now, the Hebrew word here is tzedek, and it means stiff or straight. Zero bend, no movement, no wavering, stiff or straight. Justice is the application of fairness to moral situations. Here's another way to say that God is just. He is completely fair. There is zero inequity in God at all. He is totally and completely fair. Now, Proverbs chapter 28, verse 5, says something about 
us understanding the justice of God. It says evil people don't understand justice, but those who follow the Lord understand it completely. Okay, why do evil people not understand justice? I'll tell you why. Because man always moves the line. Always. Think about this. As it relates to ourselves, we judge ourselves by our intentions rather than our actions. But how do we judge everybody else? By their actions, not their intentions. Think about it. When you get caught doing something wrong, what do you say? Well, I I meant to do this, or I didn't mean to. What we're saying is, hey, I am moving the line of judgment for myself because I judge myself by my intentions, not by my actions. Okay, let me let you in on a little secret. God judges completely fairly. What does that mean? He judges your actions and your intentions completely. God cannot change a penalty. It's another way to say that God judges fairly. God cannot change a penalty because God is just. Ecclesiastes chapter 12 verse 14 is going to sound kind of depressing after just saying that God cannot change a penalty. God will judge us for everything we do, including every secret thing whether good or bad. How many of you get excited when you read Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verse 14? Woo! God is going to judge every secret thing I do. Yeah! No, no. I, it's like I hear the Stormtrooper theme song in the, in the back of my mind. Dun, 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 dun. I, I just hear the footsteps coming to judge all of the bad secret things I've done in my lifetime and will do before I die. That doesn't sound very exciting, does it? The justice of God does not sound romantic, but it actually is. A perfect judge must judge every single bad and good thing fairly. This is really good news. He doesn't move the line. Now, another way to say this is God does not show favoritism, and that is in Scripture. I've actually heard some people say, I am one of God's favorites. No, you're not. I'm sorry to deflate your theology. No, you're not. I'm God's favorite. No, you're not. God does not show favoritism. Now, it doesn't change how much he loves you, but what you're saying is God loves me more than he loves everyone else. That's not possible. Sorry. God is just, completely equitable, totally fair, and he cannot change a penalty. Here's another way to say it. God cannot erase the penalty for Preston's sin. Now, before you get all heavy and depressed about this, let's get to point number 16. The mercy of God. The mercy of God. And this is where the justice of God gets really romantic. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 4, but God is so rich in mercy. Our God is so rich in mercy. What does the word mercy mean? Well, I'll give you the biblical definition before I do. We're going to talk about grace next week. Grace is getting what I don't deserve. Mercy is not getting what I do deserve. Okay? Now, I don't know about you, but I'm really grateful for mercy. (laughs) 
because I deserve some really bad penalty and punishment for the things I've done in my life. But our God is rich in mercy. The Greek word eleos means mercy, compassion, pity, and clemency. Now let me read you Ephesians 2, the context, verse 4 and 5. But God is so rich in mercy, and he loved you, he loved me, he loved us so much that even though we were dead because of our sins, he gave us life when he raised Christ from the dead. Now, why were we dead in our trespasses, in our sins? Because scripture tells us, Romans 6, Leviticus, tells us that the penalty for sin is what? Death. The wages of sin is death. Now, I'm going to teach some of you a new word, all right? And it's kind of a big boy, big girl theological word, but it is so beautiful, and it's actually more simple than it sounds at first hearing. It's the word atonement. Atonement. Let me give you the definition of this word. Atonement is the action of making amends for a wrong that brings two parties together as one. Remember that as I read Hebrews 2.17. Therefore, it was necessary for Jesus to be made in every respect like us, his brothers and sisters, so that he could be our merciful and faithful high priest before God. Then he could offer a sacrifice that would take away the sins of the world. It was the mercy of God, not the justice. The justice of God demanded the penalty for sin because it must. But it was the mercy of God who stepped in to pay the payment, the penalty on your behalf. God did not take away the penalty. He paid it. Jesus is your atoning sacrifice. Think about this. I'll I'll try and simplify the word atonement. Break down the first five letters of the word atonement. And what do you have? You have two words. At one. Jesus died to pay my penalty, your penalty, for my sin and your sins. Why? So that we could be made one with God the Father. It was the justice of God that set that all up. Now some days, I am a little frustrated with the justice of God, and usually that's because I've done wrong. But most days, I'm grateful for the justice of God because without the justice of God, it would not have led to the full revelation of the mercy of God through the atoning sacrifice of the blood of Jesus Christ. Our God is rich in mercy. What does this mean for us? Micah chapter 6 tells us, verse 8. O people, the Lord has told you what is good, and this is what he requires of you, to do what is right, to love mercy, to love mercy, and to walk humbly before your God. Okay, what does it mean to love mercy? It means to understand how much mercy has been extended to you. So much so that every day of your life, you wake up longing and loving to extend mercy to everyone in your life. Another word for for mercy is forgiveness. To forgive. 
to release them. To forgive. To not give them what they actually deserve in the form of penalty or punishment. Why? Because our God is so rich in mercy and has extended so much of it to us. We must live day to day, our everyday lives, loving to extend mercy. Loving that we've received mercy, but loving that so much that we extend mercy, just like it's been extended to us. Here's the last point of part three. Point number 17, the holiness of God. When we answer the question, what is God like, we have to talk about the fact that God is holy. Now, this is a hard one, and one of the reasons it's a hard one is most people think there's only one definition for the word holy. But let me, let me kind of build this up. Isaiah chapter 6, if you put a marker there, go ahead and open up to it. We're going to step into a vision that God gives Isaiah. That's very, very important. And we see something happening, and more specifically, something being said in this vision that God gives Isaiah that's recorded in Isaiah chapter 6. Let's read it together in verse 2. Attending him, God, were mighty seraphim, the angels, each having six wings, with two wings they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, with two they flew. They were calling out to each other, holy, holy, holy. Okay, three times. I'll talk about that in a minute. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of heaven's armies. The whole earth is filled with his glory. I don't have all the time that I need to walk through this, but in Scripture, and Jesus did this multiple times, when something was repeated, it was meant to give maximum impact. In other words, when, when Jesus would say, whoa, whoa, speaking of the Pharisees, he was driving the point home, okay? Now, very rarely was something repeated three times. And here's my kind of explanation for how we're to receive anything that is repeated in triplicate in Scripture. That's it right there. That what is being spoken of is so incomprehensible, but we still have to focus on it, but it is so big, so robust, it is impossible to fully wrap our minds around. The angels are attending to God the Father saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is filled with his glory. Now, remember this as we talk about God's holiness. God's holiness serves as a pattern for me and you to imitate. We have to remember this when we talk about holiness. God's holiness serves as a pattern for me to imitate. It comes straight from Scripture, Leviticus 19, verse 1, And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to all the congregation of the people of Israel and say to them, You shall be holy. Why? For I, the Lord your God, am holy. Be ye holy, King James says, for I am holy. Okay, remember, God's holiness serves as a template for me to imitate. He laid it out for us. Now, let's walk through very quickly a couple of the meanings of the word holiness. Here's the first one that everybody thinks is the only meaning for the word holiness. Holiness means moral perfection. Holiness means moral perfection. Leviticus 10.10 you were to distinguish between the holy and the common, between the unclean and the clean. Okay, the holy is connected to the clean, the uncommon to the unclean. There is a big difference, all right? This is speaking to perfection. 
Now remember, look in Isaiah chapter 6. How does Isaiah respond when just via a vision from God, hearing and seeing the angels crying out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord? What is Isaiah's response to the mere mention of God's holiness? Look at it in verse 5. Then Isaiah said, it's all over. I'm doomed. I'm doomed. Why? For I'm a sinful man. I have filthy lips and I live among a people with filthy lips. Yet I've seen the king and the Lord of heaven's armies. I love, by the way, that Isaiah doesn't just bust chuck himself. He bust chucks everybody around him. He's like, I have filthy lips, but so does everybody around me. Okay. Remember, we've talked about in this series about the attributes of God, that a, a bad habit that we have as humans is to try in our minds every once in a while to bring God down to our level. Now, we are made in his image. Another way to say that is we're made like him. But that doesn't mean he's anything like us. We talked about his transcendence. He is above all, supreme over all. Okay? The holiness of God is one of the attributes that reminds us, especially as it relates to moral perfection, God is here and I am not. Now, some take this too far and they go, well, God is morally perfect and in a fallen world, I'll never be able to be morally perfect, so why try? Remember, as followers of Jesus Christ, we are, we are called to walk in his ways and all his ways are holy. We're to shoot for that. The moral perfection of God reminds us God is here and I am not. It helps to put him in his place in our hearts and minds. Now, here's the next meaning of the word holiness. Holiness means radical differentness. This is my favorite definition of the word holiness. Radical differentness. When we talk about the holiness of God, here's another way to say it. We're talking about the altogether otherness of God. Here's another way to say it. God is totally different than anyone you will ever meet, ever. Completely different, radically different than every other. Exodus 15, verse 11. Who is like you among the gods, O Lord? The implication here, no one is like our God. Why? He's glorious in holiness. No one else is awesome in splendor, performing great works. Now remember, we said that God's holiness serves as the pattern or the template for us to follow, for us to imitate. Now, he is radically different. Our God is radically different, but we must not forget he has called us to be radically different too. Let me show you this. Old Testament, Exodus chapter 19, verse 5. This is speaking of the Jewish people. Exodus 19, verse 5. Now, if you will obey me and keep my covenant, you will be my own special treasure from among all the peoples on the earth. For all the earth belongs to me, and you will be my kingdom of priests, my holy nation, my radically different nation. Now, when we think about the word holy, we, most of us think about what we shouldn't do. But truthfully, the word holy has more to do with what we're called to do than what we're not supposed to do. Think about it. As it relates to the Jewish people, God asked them to do certain things, even commanded them to do certain things, you could say. Why? 
because he was driving the point home, I am radically different. And if you're my chosen people, my holy nation, you must be radically different too. Now, does this just apply to the Jewish people? No, it does not. It applies to all of God's people. Remember, as Gentile believers in Jesus, we've been grafted into the family of God as one new man. It's Ephesians 2. Let me show you 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. But you, speaking of Gentile believers in Jesus, non-Jewish believers is another way to say Gentile, but you are not like that, for you are a chosen people. You are royal priests, a holy nation, God's very own possession. Okay, as followers of Jesus Christ, we are called to be radically different. Here would be great homework every week of our lives for the rest of our lives. At the end of every week to ask the question, was I radically different this week? My God is radically different, and one of the only ways to really come close to being a good walking advertisement for a radically different God is to live a radically different life. Now, before you go too far with this, can I just remind all of us, he is not saying radical weirdos. So let me just take that off of your shoulders, okay? So you're like, oh, I'm gonna have to be like John the Baptist. No, okay? You don't have to be a seeming radical weirdo. But we are called to live radically different lives. What does that mean? That our fruit must be different. That our walk must be different. Our lives must look different than the average life being lived here on this earth apart from Jesus. It's one of the biggest opportunities we have to advertise our radically different God. He is radically different, holy, but he has said, I want you to be holy just as I am holy. I want you to be radically different, just as I am radically different. Here's the last uh, of, of the meanings we're going to talk about of the word holiness. Holiness means separated. And this is where the holiness of God gets romantic. And we'll finish with this. I'm going to show you in Exodus chapter 20 of something that God separated for himself related to us. Something that involved us that God separated from everything else like it. And then I want us to talk about his heart behind it. Exodus 20, verse 11. For in six days, the Lord made the heavens, the earth, the sea, and everything in them. But on the seventh day, God rested. That is why the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and set it apart as holy. Now, I know some of us don't believe in a Sabbath, but we believe in not murdering, right? One of the Ten Commandments, but we don't put thou shalt not murder and thou shalt uphold the Sabbath on the same level. A lot of us just work, 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 never stop, never observe a, a Sabbath. Listen to how romantic this is. The God of the universe took one day of our seven-day week, separated it, set it apart from the other six, and called it his day. The Sabbath day is his day. Now here's the big question. What does he want from you on his day? Well, Preston, he doesn't want me to work. No, that's surface level. Go deeper. What does he want from you on his day? 
He wants you to be with him, to do everything you do with him. He wants to be separated. Here's another way to say it. The Sabbath day is God's way of saying, Preston, don't ever forget the cry of my heart. Come away with me. Come away with me. Detach this one day from the other six. Make it all about me. Let's make this day about us. The word holiness means separated. Now, it would be easy for us to think that separated means God's morally perfect, so he is separated from us. That's not how I want you to see separation. Let me show you one more scripture, Isaiah 57, verse 15. The high and lofty one who lives in eternity, the holy one, speaking of God, says this, I live in the high and holy place by myself. Is that what it says? I live in the high and holy place with those whose spirits are contrite and humble. Here's another way to say it. The holiness of God reminds us as believers in Jesus, sons and daughters of the Most High God, the holiness of God reminds us we've been separated, not from God. That's why he sent Jesus to close the gap between us and God, atonement at one. The holiness of God reminds us we've not been separated from God. We've been separated unto God. We're called to be separated with him. And his heart is that we would not be separated from him. Now, how do you close a message on the sovereignty of God, the justice of God, the holiness of God? Truthfully, I don't know. But I'll try. There once was an orphan boy. And this orphan was abandoned by his mother and father before he turned one. He was dropped on the doorstep of an orphanage. By the time he was six, he was wreaking havoc in every room he entered into. It got so bad between six and 12 that each orphanage just started passing him on to another. Truth be told, if they were to take a truth serum, they would say it was because they couldn't stand the child and all of his evil acts. At 13, this boy made a decision that would change his life forever. He committed a crime, the worst of all crimes, and he was thrown in prison before he was even 14. 13 years old, this little boy falling asleep every night in a cold, dark, empty, lonely jail cell. Just before the boy turned 14, a man came to visit him in prison. A man he'd never met before. Just so happens that this man was considered by many, if not most, to be the most powerful and wealthy man on the earth at the time. The officers in the prison all stood at attention, trying to earn immediate favor with this wealthy and powerful man. But this man paid no attention to anyone and asked to see this little boy. The officers rushed to bring 
the 13-year-old boy who'd done so many horrible things, behind the window, handed him the phone. The wealthy and powerful man sat down before this little boy, said hello, and gave him his name. The 13-year-old said, do I know you? The man said, no, you don't. The man said, I've spoken with the judge. And if you'd like, I can get you out of here. The 13-year-old, thinking it was far too good to be true, laughed. There's no way they told me I'm going to die in here. And the man said, I know what they've told you. But I've made alternative arrangements if you'd like to take advantage of them. Would you like to be released? The 13-year-old screams into the phone, I'll do anything! The father, very somberly, said, okay. Officers let him out. 13-year-old runs through the door, still handcuffed. <laughs> they, they took him got him out of the handcuffs and as he's getting out of the cuffs he sees another man walking towards them and this man walks past them he's older than the 13 year old but younger than this older man and the man walks in and takes the same handcuffs that the boy had been in the boy says to the wealthy and powerful man what's going on who, who is that guy why is he going in there? Doesn't he know what happens in there? The wealthy and powerful man said, that's my son. The judge refused to erase the penalty. His condition of your freedom is that someone pay your penalty. Well, who is that guy? That's my son. My only son. He's going to pay your penalty. They go home. This 13-year-old boy walks into the biggest mansion he's ever seen in his entire life. And the father says to him, Would you like to be adopted by me? Would you like to take my name? Would you like to live with me for the rest of your life? For me to take care of you according to my riches, not yours? 13-year-old said, I'll do anything. And the father said, I'll do it. But I want you to know, I have a way of doing things. I'm known for doing things a certain way. And if you're going to take my name, what I'd ask is that you walk in my ways. Walk according to the values of your new family not your old ways, your old life. And the 13-year-old boy wrapped his arms around the wealthy, powerful father. And for the first time, he heard someone say, I love you, son. And in that moment, the little boy, all of the things he had done, each of those nights in that lonely jail cell, or playing in his head as this wealthy, powerful father 
wrapped him up in non-judgmental, fully merciful love. And the 13-year-old boy thought, the least I can do in response to this man's love is to walk like he walks. I know you already know this, but you're the orphan in the story, and so am I. But God, who is so rich in mercy, rescued us. Thanks for joining us on Gateway.Live. For more information about Gateway Church, please visit us at www.gatewaylife.com.